0: fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven falling under the earth, and there was given to him the key of the pit of the abyss. And he opened the pit of the abyss, and there went up a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke in the pit, and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was said unto them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, But only such men as have not the seal of God in their foreheads. It was given them that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And the torment was as the torment of a scorpion when it striketh a man. In those days men will seek death and shall in no wise find it. They'll desire to die and death will flee from them. The shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for war. The fifth and sixth trumpets take us into the realm of this supernatural forces that we will be confronted with. Somebody will be confronted with in the future. And what will literally happen, as I've read just a part of this, what will literally happen will make some of the most vivid and graphic horror movies ever produced seem crude. And cartoonish by comparison now I, I don 't like scary movies. some people do they, they it 's the adrenaline rush watching something and just being being uh, scared stiff i, I don 't like that, but what 's going to happen here if if Hollywood can produce movies that produce that kind of reaction emotional investment in what they're doing. What's going to happen here? Can you imagine the fear? This angel takes a key and opens the abyss. And when the abyss is open, this dense, dark smoke comes belching out. Blocking the sun, bringing dingy darkness on the earth at even midday. And then these demonic creatures ascend out of this pit. And as the, they slowly emerge from somewhere in the obscurity of the smoke. They start emerging out of this smoke. And John, the best he can do is describe them as something that looked like, a a little bit like a locust. And as a matter of fact, it, Had this ability to sting like a scorpion and the sting of the scorpion doesn't kill it just torments so this creature that looks something like a locust with this sting that is tormenting people bringing indescribable torment and anguish on the population of the earth these creatures guided by God, the, the limits, the boundaries, the parameters set by God, and allowed to inflict their pain on earth's occupants, on the rebellious portion. But don't touch the trees, don't touch the grass, don't touch the plants, and don't touch anybody who's been sealed by God. That would be a, a good time t- to make sure today... That no matter how this plays out and when this happens, you're sealed by God. I hope this is so graphic that you would not leave today without making sure I'm sealed by God. I don't want those creatures inflicting pain on me. I don't like flying, stinging insects anyway. I don't like wasps. I don't like hornets. I don't like yellow jackets. They just seem so evasive. I can't quite swat them. They always evade every effort I make to kill them. And they fly off and then they come back and attack again. I don't like that. Much less to be seeing these creatures. That would be frightening. uh, To the nth degree, I would think. Now... I guess we would probably panic, most of us, if we became aware of a swarm of African killer bees taking over the Quad Cities. I don't think we have African killer bees in this area yet, but they're migrating north just for the good news today. (laughs) And the thing about African killer bees is uh, they are relentless. Uh, Regular bees don't tend to swarm to the point of killing its victim. But the African killer bees are vicious. They're coming after you. So let's just pretend for a minute we've got news that African killer bees are here. There's a swarm moving towards the Quad Cities. Don't go out if you don't have. Remember that old movie, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, where these things are just everywhere. Now, now we've got swarming something going on here. And then translated into what's going to happen in the future with these demonic locust creatures. You don't swat them. They don't respond to pesticides and hornet spray. After all, these creatures have spent who knows how long in a furnace in the heart of the earth. If that didn't hurt them, you're not going to get them with a flash You're not going to get them with a can of raid. They don't care. The sheer torment they inflict is a- appropriately represented by their hideous appearance. John gives this vivid description of something we can just Barely even fathom. I can't even really build the picture in my mind. They're like horses prepared for a battle. Yet they have something like a human face. Now that's, that's gross right there. A locust with a little human face on it. And they have long hair like a woman. But teeth like a lion. Breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings... When they're swarming, sounded like the rumbling of thousands of horses and chariots rushing into battle. You could hear them coming, and you can't do anything about it. For five seemingly eternal months, these things swarm and torment day after day, night after night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with no relief. And they operated under this leader, supposedly a king, whose name is given in both the Hebrew and the Greek, Abaddon and Apollyon, respectively. And in the Old Testament, Abaddon was a name of a subterranean place of the dead. And Apollyon is a Greek name taken from the Greek verb, which means to destroy. So you have the destroyer from the place of the dead. And then we move to the sixth trumpet, and there are four angels released from underneath the river Euphrates. And that bit of information piques our interest because who are they? Why are they there? How did they get there? How long have they been there? Why are they under the Euphrates? And we're not given answers to any of these questions, so it's this mysterious thing about four angels. But we know one thing from this passage is they have been there in waiting for a specific time and a specific purpose. And that time and that purpose arrives at that point as John sees this vision. That will be some time in the future for us. Their hour will come. They will be released with a mission to kill one-third of the population of the earth. And along with the release of the angels, there appears an army of 200 million. And again, these are grotesque creatures that have a composite appearance of somewhat of a horse with a lion's head. And they all spewed fire and smoke and sulfur from their mouth. Three plagues. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. All three of which are responsible for slaughtering multitudes. And the tails of the horses, John describes as a snake, a serpent. These creatures, Hollywood could not have invented anything any nastier than what you're seeing right here. A horse with a snake for a tail that's got a head on the end of it. Don't walk around the back of that horse and that mouth of that snake able to inflict pain and bite. This is disgusting. And if the thought of that is, it's enough to send shivers down your spine if you'll just think about it. And think about the sheer number, 200 million, the sheer number of these creatures up on the face of the earth. And here's the amazing summary of these terrifying judgments. Those who survived, the remaining two-thirds that did not get killed yet. Those who survived remained stubbornly unrepentant. That blows my mind. What they have pictured here haunts me, bothers me so much that if I'm thinking the only thing I have to do to avoid these nasty locust creatures and these horses with snake tails that are running around tormenting and killing people is just to repent, I'm ready right now. If that's all it takes, Lord, I'm getting right with you today. And at the end of this, with the locusts and these beasts tormenting and killing one out of every third person, look on your pew, pick out two other people and say, (laughs) which one of us is surviving? Two out of three survives, one out of three dies. And they're not repenting. They didn't repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshiping their idols. They didn't repent of their murders, the Bible says. They didn't repent of their witchcraft, their sorceries. They didn't repent of their sexual immoralities. They didn't repent of their theft. For that matter, they didn't repent of any single sinful thing they were doing. These judgments were specifically designed to drive people to repentance. And the Bible describes a people whose heart has grown so hard, so calloused, that these creatures cannot drive them to decide to repent before God. Neither did they repent. That's the part I can't get my brain around. Why not? And and you know what? We are dealing with people today from whom will descend these hard-hearted people that will not repent even in the face of this this unholy, ungodly, frightening judgment. They just, it won't move them. They don't care. And maybe some of the people whose descendants will be like that are already carrying that attitude. What does it take to get people to repent anymore? It's getting to where people today are so hard-hearted. They're not repenting. When it looks to me like there's plenty of reason to repent and come back to God. We just had a horrible tragedy hit our soil The 9-11, the the twin towers, the jets that were driven in there. And for the following Sunday, there was an explosion in the population, in the congregations of the churches. People wanted to go to church. But there was no long-lasting change. Temporarily, they wanted to go and be religious for a Sunday. But long-term, it did not turn the nation back to God. What is it going to take? How hard-hearted can people be? There's a hardness setting into the hearts of men and women these days. It's more than passively not having time for God. It's way beyond that. It's a bitter hatred for God. It's a bitter hatred for decency. Holiness, purity, righteousness. We see it in the way men and women openly mock things we once considered honorable and decent. They mock virginity. What chance do our young people have when they are mocked and ridiculed and shamed because they choose to protect their virginity rather than give it away to the lowest bidder? And yet they're made to feel ashamed for taking a stand. What chance do they have? They mock sobriety. If you don't go out and drink with your buddies, you're some kind of a weirdo. They're mocking uh, virtue and righteousness. They mock holy matrimony. They mock our God-assigned sexuality. They celebrate perversions like never before. And it's far beyond people fighting for abortion rights. It's to the point where they are celebrating abortion with joy and satanic glee. That's the hardness of the heart of the people we see today. That will give birth to the people who will be so hard that even these kind of judgments will not cause them to turn to God. And repent of their thefts, their murders, their their lying, their cheating, their sexual immorality. They will not repent it appears as though nothing will drive them back to God they mock Jesus Christ they mock his followers they mock the Bible they call it irrelevant and antiquated they sin with reckless abandon and zero remorse their consciences have been so seared with a hot iron they feel no compunction for their sins and all of this we see today is the foundation for what we read about in Revelation. It's coming. The hardness is going to get harder and harder and more and more people get hardened to God. When even in the most repulsive and gruesome judgment that sweeps across the earth, one out of every three people die, and the calloused hearts of those who have become so dead Die-hard, unflinching God-haters. They just will not budge. They watch their friends die. They watch their families die. They watch their babies die in their arms under the judgment of God, and they still stand and dare to curse Him. What is it coming to? One can only read that last paragraph and shake the head in utter disbelief. God has shown his power and authority and sovereignty and offered grace for repentance and they cling to their sins and inexplicably they defend their lifestyle. I have a right to live like I want to live. Nothing can make me change. What will it take to turn a hardened heart to God when these people refuse to bow down to the Almighty and what hope do they have? Do they think their idols are somehow going to rise up and rescue them? They continue to worship them. Do they think that God is eventually going to run out of ideas how to torment them and just give up? Is that what they're thinking? Do they really think they can outlast God? That he can send wave after wave of judgment and if they just endure long enough he's going to go away? Do they not understand that God has just demonstrated his total Power over them. That he holds them in the palm of his hands. He can squish them like a bug in a minute. And they don't care. We move from the ninth chapter. Where we have this alarming. Hardness of the heart. In the view of these. Shocking judgments. And we have this little interlude. That goes on. Fifth and sixth trumpets. Completed to. (coughs) Of. Of the three woes. And the seventh trumpet is soon going to bring the third woe, but not yet, because John pauses to give an explanation. Before he gets to that seventh trumpet, there's some background details he wants to fill in. To bring us up to speed in the narrative, the mighty angel delivers this scroll for John to eat. And then we have the scene of two witnesses. And after those two scenes, then John resumes with the seven trumpet. We won't get into the two witnesses today, but let's talk about the mighty angel. We have this vision of this mighty angel descending from heaven. He's robed in a cloud. He's crowned with a rainbow. His face shines like the sun. His legs appear like two fiery pillars. He stands on earth, one foot on the sea, one on the land, and he has this little scroll in his hand that was unsealed. It was not necessarily unrolled, but the seal was was broken on us. It was open. And he shouts like the roar of a lion. Now, there, the descriptive words there leads some people to suggest this mighty angel is Christ. But it doesn't necessarily have to be Christ because we're, we're, we're uh, curious about why John never did plainly identify Jesus Christ like he did elsewhere when he saw the Lamb of God. But he's just a mighty angel. So let's, let's just go with the possibility this is not necessarily Jesus Christ. It is a powerful, mighty angel at the very minimum, okay? At the very minimum. In so doing, we can focus on one thought. If that kind of an angel created by God that can show shake the earth with his voice like a mighty roaring lion that can stand on earth with that much power and that much authority and that kind of uh, regal uh, robe and, and adornment. If that kind of mighty angel is still under God, how powerful must God be? He's got that power working under him. How great is the Almighty then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to the heavens. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who created the heavens and all that is in them. The earth and all that is in it. And the sea that and all that is in it. And said there will be no more delay. He makes this declaration. Now things just leap out at me as I read that. First of all I'm going to deal with how God is described here. The angel standing on earth lifting one hand toward heaven. And and I'll come back to this in a minute. But it describes God. Lifting the hand to who? Swearing by him who lives forever and ever. I don't know if any of you have spent any time trying to get your brain around the eternality of God or not. But I do that from time to time. And every time I do it, my brain short circuits. I cannot get this comprehended. And I think somewhat sympathetically, no wonder people have a hard time believing there is a God because here is this being that is eternal. There always has been a God. There never was a time when there was not a God. How can that be? How can there be a God who has no origin? How can there be a God that as far back as you can can forever and ever and ever, how did that start? And then you're reminded, but we're not talking about it started. There was no start. Well, how can that be? How can there always have been a God for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years and never not been a God? And and my mind keeps wanting to go back to who deemed that that would be, that there would be a God. He's self-existent. And when when I grapple with this, when I wrestle with this, it's like you keep wanting to go back. Well, that must have been God's plan. But wait a minute. He's always been. How can you have a plan to start something if you've always been? And my mind just shuts down. I can't get it. Eternal. That's way beyond my the ability of my finite gray matter to be able to process. And no wonder people look at us funny and say, you believe in God? How can you believe in that? But When you look at the evidence of God, when you look at the fingerprints of God, when you look at creation, when you look at the DNA of the human body, when you look at the complexity of of what we are, it screams out in undeniable testimony, somebody had to design this. There's intelligence behind this. This doesn't happen as a result of a, a spark uh, hitting some primordial ooze and causing the spark of life, and an amoeba splits into two and crawls out and grows legs. I mean, that's a fairy tale. When you look at the complexity of the human being, and to think it's all accident—that's that's the only proof I've got. That, that says there there has to be a designer behind this. We talked about this in our apologetics study we had two, three, four years ago. It's called the, uh, the, 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 the story of the watchmaker. If you're walking through the woods and you see a watch out in the woods and you pick it up. Your first logical immediate reaction is that somebody made this. It was not a result of nature to s- just accidentally put together a watch with all the mechanisms and the cogs and the wheels and the springs and the hands and the numbers and to say well that just that's, what an accident. That's far more sophisticated than this purple rock over here but look what nature did. That we would be total utter ridiculous fools to attribute this to accident. And that watch is a crude toy compared to the DNA uh, code that is in a, every human being. And to to say it had to be somebody create this watch, but we are accidents is absurd to the nth degree. So when I can't get my brain about the eternality of God, yet I see the evidence, there has to, it just has to be, there is no other answer to all of this. The angel stands on earth and raises his hand to the one who is eternal, who knows this is the eternal God. Now, I want to talk about raising the hand. When we worship God, how do we worship Him? There is n- nothing that is required of us to do. No action we do that, that says we have to do this to worship God. We, we bow down and pray to Him sometimes. But there is no biblical mandate that says you have to bend the knee. We raise our hands sometimes. There's no biblical mandate, so you have to raise your hands. But this angel, this mighty angel that I would not take him on in any kind of a battle or wrestling match, I just wouldn't do it. He's mighty. He raises his hand to God. And it was very common in that culture... That the raising of the hand meant something symbolic. The Greeks would raise their hand as though to symbolize they were grabbing a hold of Zeus. And while holding on to Zeus, they would make their proclamation. That I'm holding on to God. And what I'm saying has to be true because I am clinging to Zeus. And if I don't tell the truth, what might happen to me? Now, it it crosses cultures, the raising of the hand. So here's the angel raising his hand to the one that is eternal, the one that is greater than him. That's what the raising of the hand meant, is it was an acknowledgement of somebody that is greater than you. Now, if you want any kind of a rationale for raising your hand when it's time to worship God, I cannot think of a better reason to do that than just to stand there and take a moment and say, you know what? God is greater than I am. And in acknowledgement of that, in surrender to Him, in, in submission to Him, I'm just going to say, you're greater than I am. And just think about making that statement in your worship. It's, it's, it's a It's a surrender it's a submission. It makes it so much easier than to say why are we doing this anyway? How long are we going to have to do this? How come they do it more over there than they do over here? Do they make everybody raise their hands in this church? It's not about that at all. It's about this personal acknowledgement that somebody is greater than me. And we have this human way of expressing that. You're greater than I am. I submit to you. And you know, when you have that attitude, it's very easy just to slip a hand up and say, God, I just want to acknowledge today, you're far greater than I am. I'm weak. You're strong. I'm human. You're divine. You're great. I'm nothing. And it makes it so easy to surrender to God at that point. At that moment, the angel stands upon the sea and the land and the Seven thunders said something. <laughs> and, and John took his writing utensil, his pen, his pencil, whatever, they, his stylus. And the thunder spoke something. He said, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. And the voice came out of heaven and said, don't write that down. He said, no, don't write that down. <laughs> he heard it. He wanted to write it down and he was forbidden. And that just annoys me. (laughs) You know, if you know something I don't know, don't tell me you know something I don't know and can't tell me. That's just torment. I know something you don't know, and I can't tell you what it is. (laughs) You drive me nuts. Come on, tell me. Tell me what it is. I can't. Why why did you tease me? I was a whole lot happier not knowing than to know, and then you taunt me, but I can't tell you what it is. And John has just taunted me. (laughs) We've got this message of these seven thunders. And I'm dying to know what it is. (laughs) He said, I was going to write it down and tell you. But I can't now. (laughs) Deuteronomy 29.29. Do not turn there yet. How many of you know what it says? Stick your hand up. Deuteronomy 29.29. Well, then this is something you should lock in your mind right now. This is something you should always get a hold of. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do the words of the law. Just remember that. If you can't remember just the first part, the secret things of God belong to him. Deuteronomy 20, because 29, 29 is easy to remember, right? Remember that. Make that one you never forget again. Because what it's telling us is there are certain things that God just isn't going to tell us. And that's the way it is. Deal with it. Quit being so anxious about God. I just want to know. I just want to know if I could just understand. Now, there's some things God may tell you. But there's certain things you're never going to know. And you got to move on. you got to get over it. you got to forget about it because God knows and you don't. And you're not going to know. But he still expects you to love him and to trust him. And that's the dynamic of our relationship with him. He will always know things you don't know. And he will sometimes choose never to tell you this side of heaven. That's where you have to live life. In that that realm of faith knowing that you have to walk without understanding sometimes. You have to trust without knowing the details sometimes. You are emotionally invested in this reading and suddenly you were denied the message Moses understood that thousands of years ago when he put that down secret things belong to God we have to know the same thing we have to learn to be content with that reality and then the angel takes this little scroll in his hand and he says to John here have a sweet scroll <laughs> and John says don't mind if I do <laughs> getting kind of hungry so he takes this scroll and he puts it in his mouth and he said, that is one sweet scroll, tastes good and he hits his stomach and it turns on him, I <laughs> said so what did you put in that <laughs> tasted good to the mouth sweet as honey and it went down and it, oh man <laughs> something's not settling right here turned bitter in his stomach. And then the angel said, now go and prophesy. Many nations that need to hear what you've got to say. And the whole thing that is represented here is John has just consumed something that is both sweet and bitter. That is the powerful truth of God. It's both sweet and it's bitter. It can't just be all candy. If you want a sermon that's all candy, you'll have to keep looking. If you want a sermon that's all bitterness and fear, you have to keep looking. We're trying to, what do they call it? Fair and balanced. That's the the word today. We're trying to be fair and balanced. You preach the word of God, and sometimes it's going to be the sweetest thing you ever heard. And sometimes you're going to go, oh, me. That hurt. But that's the power of the truth. And John was responsible to take that and continue to prophesy the truth. The straight, true, undiluted, unadulterated word of God is not always easy to deliver. We know that eventually people are going to be offended by the truth. We just know that. We know some who are offended will retaliate. We know that. I've seen it quite often in ministry. You simply tell the truth. And some people become so enraged. They don't want the truth. They wanted affirmation. And you're not going to get it. You need the truth. The honest direct proclamation of the word of God. Here in the United States is more vital today than it has ever been in the history of this nation. Yet we know it is bound to be less popular and less received today than ever before. You just can't dilute it. It's got to be delivered with full integrity, just as it is. And I I send the challenge out to our younger generation. You've got to know the truth of the Word of God. You cannot buy into the lies of this culture and, and this age and this time. They're going to twist the truth. They're going to turn it around. And you've got to stand square on the truth of God's word. And stand unflinching and stand without apologizing. If you're the last person on earth that believes it. You have to stand and believe it. You cannot give in to the pressures of this world. To change and compromise the truth of God's word. It's only when it's delivered with full integrity. That the word of God can effectively take root and bring forth a harvest. Preaching a false gospel doesn't do anything but deliver false hope. It has to be the preaching of the true word of God. And like John, we have to proclaim the good news that is both sweet and bitter. We have God's providence. We preach his protection. We preach his love. And we also preach the coming judgment of God on the wicked. Because wicked men and women have to be given time to repent. While there's still time, today is the day of salvation. Would you bow your heads?